What we found is that after people go through the veil of ignorance reasoning exercise, they're more likely to say that it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge to save five people. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Grossman. Over the next half an hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Today is a big day. At the On Wisdom podcast, we've been excited for this for a number of months. Joshua Green is with us. Joshua Green is Professor of Psychology and a member of the Center for Brain Science faculty at Harvard University. His research has focused on the psychology and neuroscience of moral judgment and examining the interplay between emotion and reason in moral dilemmas. His current behavioral research examines strategies for improved social decision making and the alleviation of intergroup conflict. Other interests include effective altruism and the social implications of advancing artificial intelligence. He's also the author of the book, Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. I have a question Sure. Uh, to get started. So we just talked about COVID and the pandemic. And I was wondering, how did the global pandemic response, did it trigger any insights for your work on human morality? Well, I think it it underscored something that I, I think I've believed for a while, but really made the case maybe even more strongly than I predicted it could be made. And that is the difference between our incredible abilities as a species to adapt with material technology and the the utter failures that we can show when it comes to, to social technology. So um, I think my, the, to me, the clearest example of this was uh, NIH director Francis Collins when he was uh, leaving the NIH after having uh, r- run it during most of the pandemic, was asked if he had any regrets or if he felt like he got anything wrong. And he said, you know, we did such an incredible job getting the vaccines out in in record time. You know, the biotechnology was just beyond what anyone could have reasonably predicted in terms of how good it was. And he said, you know, I but I never would have guessed that our biggest problem would be getting people to actually take the shots that could save their (laughs) lives. Uh, And I just never thought that our fundamental problem here would be politics and polarization and tribalism rather than actually creating a life-saving vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of social sci- social scientists and psychologists especially listen to this and we're like, yeah, duh, fund our <laughs> research, please. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, even even I already having a bias uh, in, 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 in favor of, you know, we, we need to get our social act together was I was surprised at how badly we did on the social side of this. Um, and it just sort of, I think, underscores the the, the, the challenge, the, the, the tension between um, actually what Max Tegmark has called the wisdom race. That is the, 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 the race between our ability to build things that could destroy ourselves or build things that could save ourselves in terms of physical technology, and then our abil- ability to make wise decisions collectively about uh, what to do or not do with that. I got to ask though, and this is a really, I was, uh, I remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, on social media, one fellow uh, morality researcher said, don't you dare doing trolley dilemmas on COVID. And specifically <laughs> referring to uh, the question, whom to save? 
Yeah. Uh, and I mean, did, did it occur to you? I mean, I'm running ahead a little bit of your program of research, of course, but uh, as somebody who has done trolley dilemmas, um, did it occur to you? Yes, no? Not only, uh, not only did it occur to us, we have a paper on this. Uh, so we have a, 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 a paper looking at people's judgments about how to allocate resources and in particular based on age with the understanding that age is a factor that can affect the uh, the the efficacy of the intervention. So this was done in, at, at the time when uh, ventilators were in short supply. And right. the, the this was in particular what was happening in Italy early on. Uh, there was a time when the, you know, ventilators were short and uh, emergency doctors and doctors more generally and nurses were having to make decisions like who should get the ventilator. And one of the arguments was, well, if you give it to a younger person uh, and save them, they have, they have more years of life ahead of them uh, than an older person, right? So actually, I, I'd said before, likelihood that it would work, which is another sort of factor that could go either way. But here, the key the key factor in this research was, if you save somebody with a ventilator, are you saving more years of life? And someone who's younger, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's an argument in favor of someone who's younger. And um, this was building on prior research that we did using uh, what we called veil of ignorance reasoning, in, inspired by John Rawls right. and, and John Harsanyi's veil of ignorance argument uh, about well, the allocation of resources in society in general. And uh, what we found in our earlier paper was that if you have people do veil of ignorance reasoning on moral dilemmas, you know, including trolley cases, but also bioethical things and, and cases involving self-driving cars and things like that, their judgments become more utilitarian. Uh, mm-hmm. So the idea goes something like this. So to take the classic kind of footbridge kind of case, um, there are six people who can be affected by the footbridge. So this is where you can push the person off the footbridge in front of the trolley and they die. But by doing that, you'll stop the trolley from uh, hitting the other five people. So you can save five lives at, at the expense of one. And I, and I always have to say this, I understand that, you, you know, it may not be very realistic that you can mm-hmm. uh, stop a trolley with a person and that you have such good aim and putting yeah, he'd people have to be a really, really, things. really big person. Right. But, yeah. but we've all, we've all been to the movies and we know how to True. suspend disbelief yeah. Yeah. and, and you know, imagine right. you accept right. the, the, the premise there. Uh-huh. Um, if you ask people, you know, is it okay to push the person in front of the trolley in order to save five people? You know, it depends on who you ask and when. But in this case, say about 30% of people would say that that's okay. So a minority. Um, but then we do the veil of ignorance. That is, we say, well, there are six people who can be affected by this. The person who gets pushed in front of the trolley or not. And the five people who could be saved by doing that or not. And so we ask people first, uh, if you were going to be one of these six people, but you didn't know who you were going to be. So we'll just say uh, you have a one in six chance of being each of those six people. Um, what would you want the decision maker to do? Well, what that means is that you have a, if, if the decision maker pushes, then you have a five out of six chance of living and a one in six chance of dying. Um, and if the decision maker doesn't push, then you have a five out of six chance of dying and a one out of six chance of, 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 of living. Um, uh and uh, what we found is, you know, not surprisingly, most people from a purely self-interested perspective, which is how the veil of ignorance is supposed to be run, um, would say that uh, 
they would rather have the person push. They would rather have a, a have have a five out of six chance of 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 living, right? And then we ask people, okay, well, having gone through that thought experiment, and 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 the idea of the thought experiment is a fair decision is one that you would choose if you didn't know who in society or who in the mm-hmm. situation you were going to be, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort right. of the idea is it's it's selfish, but from everybody's yeah. perspective at once. Mm-hmm. Um, And what we found is that after people go through the veil of ignorance reasoning exercise, they're more likely to say that it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge to save five people. Now, you might say, well, that's terrible. Pushing people off the footbridges is a bad thing. Um, And I'm not here to sort of defend that. But in in other cases in the original set that we did, the the decision is more defensible. For example, self-driving cars that minimize the loss of life without privileging the passenger, the one who's inside the car. You might think that that's a a good thing, for example. So this is all background. So in the COVID paper, what we did is we said, okay, there is a ventilator to be allocated and it could go to a younger person who has many years of life to live and, and would go on to live those lives if they get the ventilator or an older person who's right. going to live maybe just for another 10 or 15 years at most. Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't know who you were going to be, which of those two people, if you had a 50-50 chance, what would you want the decision maker to do? And so you might think something like this. You might say, well, if the decision maker gives it to the younger person, then I have a 50% chance of getting a, a much extended life. Um uh, but then there's a chance that I, 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 I die, you know, 10 years before I otherwise might. Whereas if it goes to the older person, then I might have my life extended by, say, 10 years. But there's a 50% chance that I would lose most of my life. And most people would say, yeah, I'd rather, I, I, if I didn't know who I was going to be, I'd rather have it go to the younger person because if, you know, because the, the, the stakes are so much higher for the younger person. If they win, they win big. If they lose, they lose big, right? Mm-hmm. Um and then we said, okay, well, what do you think of a policy that says that, you know, th- that ventilators should be allocated towards people who are younger if it's likely to save more years of life? And what we found is that uh, having people go through the veil of ignorance reasoning exercise makes them more likely to approve of allocating the ventilators in a way that maximizes the amount of life that is saved in terms of years of life. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the most interesting thing here is that when we did this, when we did a, we did a version of this where we kept track of people's ages, uh, making the making these judgments, and what we found was that in general, younger people, maybe not surprisingly, were already in favor for the most part of right. allocating ventilators yeah. to people who are younger. It was the older people who said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, first come, first serve. Everybody mm-hmm. counts the same." Right. After we had right. them go through the veil of ignorance reasoning exercise, the older people changed their mind and they became less biased towards older people um, and more in favor of just maximizing life years. So uh, the the overall result is is that in this biomedical case, um, having people go through this veil of ignorance reasoning exercise mitigated a kind of self-serving bias where where the older people were more likely to say age shouldn't matter um you should just you know whoever shows up first that's who gets it even if the person who shows up first doesn't have that many years of life to live no matter what um but after after going through that veil of ignorance thinking the older people actually came more in line with what the younger people were already saying um 
So I, I, th- I think of this as a kind of uh, wisdom strategy at work. Now, th- of course, this reflects my view that it's better to save more years of life. Um, other people might might disagree. Um, I know other people certainly do disagree. But um, this is uh, applying uh, you know trolley type dilemmas to COVID cases, and I and I, I think you know. There are good ways and bad ways of doing it, but I think that this way is actually pretty illuminating about uh, a, a real decision that people were facing. So you did not follow that recommendation. Don't you do any trolley <laughs> dilemmas during the COVID No, time? I didn't. Although I'm not doing as much trolley stuff in general these days, but it's not That's because right. people on the internet are telling me not to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so obviously this podcast is about uh, wisdom. Wisdom connects to so many things, but we like to ask yeah. three questions about wisdom first more broadly yeah. and then um change over to looking more specifically at your research but um yeah so, so the first question we, we like to ask people is you know wisdom can mean many things to to different people yeah. so what does it mean to you and is is there anything that you think of in, that is a key part of wisdom that you think is overlooked or perhaps surprising or counterintuitive so i think part of what makes wisdom interesting is that it's a kind of multi-level phenomenon, if you want to call it that. So, um, I mean, I think one, one thing that's fairly sort of straightforward about wisdom is that, you know, we're more likely to describe it as kind of more art than science, right? That when there's a clear formula for how to do something and someone can apply the formula, we describe that person as having a certain skill, but we don't generally describe that as sort of an instantiation of, of, of wisdom. That, right. and, and so in psychological terms, you know, applying wisdom involves having some kind of intuition or instinct or implicit knowledge that can't or can't yet be captured by some set of, of rules or some formula, right? Then sort of taking this a level up, you could say, well, you know, you can have good intuitions or instincts or implicit knowledge about something, but, you know, your, uh, your intuitions might be out of date, right? Or they, they, uh, And one way of thinking about this, you know, if you were, if you're thinking about this in machine learning terms, right? That you're, 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 you're going out of distribution, that you have a neural network or whatever that's been trained on one data set. And then when you try to uh, have it solve a somewhat different version of the same problem where uh, the input output relations are a bit different then it fails or even fails miserably. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, you may have, for example, you know, old, older women advising young, young, young women on, you know, how to behave and how to be a lady and how to get a good man and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, within a certain social context, maybe that was very good advice. Maybe that person's life would go much better if they followed that advice. But what the the advice giver in that case may not realize is that things have changed since the 1950s or the 1920s or or whatever whatever it is, right? And so it's not enough that it's kind of hard-won implicit knowledge or implicit judgment. It has to be applicable to the current decision, right? You need to be sure that that, 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 that that it generalizes in the right way. And so what that means is that if you're going to be really wise, you not only have to have hard-won instincts and intuitions, but you also have to have some kind of higher-level judgment about the reliability of your intuitions and your, and, and, and your instincts. And of course, those are judgments themselves, and you can play the same meta right. game all the way up where you have mm-hmm. judgments and instincts about yeah. when to trust your judgments about when right. to trust your judgments and instincts, right? Yeah. So, so it goes sort of recursively Turtles all, all the way up, scale, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I think the sort of 
challenge of wisdom, especially in a complicated world and a world that's always changing, is how do you make use of the hard-won instinctive or implicit knowledge that you have while also preparing yourself for the inevitable time when your hard-won knowledge is either no longer applicable or it's less applicable than you mm -hmm. thought and needs to be adjusted with some kind of explicit recognition that, you know, hold on, things, mm -hmm. things are different, or maybe the situation is not what I, what I thought it is. And so it's always a kind of race between uh you know your, your your ability to soak up knowledge and 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 the world's ability to to change and pull a fast one on you i i'm um really interested when, now that we have you here you know, with your sort of deep research into morality how, where how you think morality fits in with wisdom you know, can you be wise uh without being moral um you know is, is or are those two two ideas sort of inextricably linked well, I mean, wisdom certainly has a kind of positive moral flavor to it, right? But, you know, you can imagine, you know, an exceptionally good gangster who just has really good instincts about, you know, you know, who you can trust and who you can't and, you know, when 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 to have people killed and when to keep them alive. And I mean, in some ways, I think Donald Trump is like this. I mean, Donald Trump is not scholarly and he's not intellectual and he doesn't talk and think the way that we train people to talk and think at our fine universities, but in his horrific way is incredibly good at sizing people up and identifying their weaknesses and figuring out just the right thing to say that will make his supporters turn against the people he wants them to turn against. And, you know, so you know, I, I I get in all kinds of trouble if I were to say without context. You know, Donald Trump is very wise. I'm not a Trump fan, but he he he, you know, he and other bad people uh, can have a, a kind of hard won implicit knowledge about how to get what you want in the world, right? And so, you know, in a way, it's wise, and in a way, it's. It's 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 not, and it kind of depends on whether you are using a value neutral definition of wisdom. Mm -hmm. But certainly, when we say that someone's wise, we usually mean that they're not just in possession of useful implicit knowledge about how to achieve goals, but that they also have some kind of a decent moral compass. Mm. So there are many things that I want would love to unpack, but. Um, Maybe the key one is uh, that uh, you're talking about uh, journalizability of implicit knowledge from one institution to the next and the fit and uh, the role of sort of metacognitive capacities. So if you were to pick one thing people could do to help them make wiser decisions, Josh, what would it be? So I think my, my favorite bumper sticker is uh, don't believe everything you think. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> right. And what I like about that is it's not saying disbelieve everything you think, right? It's more just don't automatically believe it. So I think that if, I guess, I think the general formula for, 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 for wisdom is to have good intuitions, to have good instincts, and to take, take your gut seriously, but don't take your gut as infallible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and be willing to think about ways in which your intuitions might be wrong and ways in which you might need to adjust and compensate for the limitations of, of your intuitions. I think that's, 
that's the way you kind of climb the ladder, um, alternating between, between intuition and explicit reasoning. I wanted to ask a broader structural question, I suppose, like, um, you know, our behavior depends on the communities we live in and places we work, etc. Can you, can you think of anything that could be changed about um, the way we live that would lead to people taking wiser decisions as a community or as a society? Yeah. So, I mean, we have been going through an imp- a period of great demographic sorting, right? And this, this started before the internet. Um, uh, people increasingly started living in places, especially cities and even neighborhoods within cities and sub-neighborhoods within neighborhoods where they're just much more likely to encounter people who are like them. Uh, and then the internet, as we know, really turbocharged this, right? Um, and, you know, we've long since left uh, what you might call in the United States the Walter Cronkite era when, you know, uh, mm. everybody tunes in to watch the news, right? Uh, the idea of the news anymore, that there's this single thing that everybody's paying attention to and getting, I mean, uh, is, 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 is long gone. And, you know, in many ways, it's great that people have more choice about where to get information and about uh, where they want to live and what they want to do. But, you know, the, the, the effects that this is having on our democracy, I think, are, are really sort of one of existential threat. And uh, a lot of what I'm interested in these days is thinking about how can we bring people together across our sort of cultural and ideological divides. And you've probably heard a lot right. of people say that before. And what they usually go on to say after that is, and this is why I am getting Republicans and Democrats to have dialogue and and and, and talk right. to each other. Right. And that is not the strategy that we're taking. I, I think that it assumes, not that I have anything against dialogue, but it assumes that the problem is fundamentally informational. That it's, oh, I hadn't heard your perspective on this, right? And I think that that's kind of maybe the last half mile. But the more fundamental problem is that we we see other people who are different from us across the political divide as not even on our team, not people we can trust, not people who are acting in, in, in good faith. And so my view is that what we re- really need is more cooperation, in particular mutually beneficial cooperation across our lines of division. And so, you know, my, my hope, you know, so I usually, well, what we're doing right now is we're having people uh, play cooperative games online. Uh, this is work with Evan DeFilippis, uh, the grad student lead, leading this project uh, in, in my lab, who's fantastic. Um, and uh, that has been going well. And it, it looks like if you have people cooperate in a mutually beneficial way, that can produce mm-hmm. good Results and I, I I won't say anything more about that because this is unpublished and and I don't want to get too far ahead of it. But mm. the more general idea I think is that we need to figure out ways to uh, have America working together, whether you know that means li- literally in people's jobs or in other ways, um, so that we can see each other as 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 people on the same team. And I, I and and I think until we see people on the other side politically as cooperation partners mm-hmm. that we're all in this together and that we can all benefit from right. each other's uh, strengths. I think I, I, if we can't fix that, then I, I think there's, there's little hope uh, for, for our democracy 
But I do think there are ways, there are paths forward um, for that. I want to turn back um, to morality. We'll, we'll return to the cooperation and prosociality in a little bit. Uh, but one key question I should be asking you, Josh, is your work on your earlier work on brain processes and moral dilemmas. Yeah. And forgive me for uh, asking you questions that you've probably been asked many, many times before. But can you tell us a little bit about the dual process model and in particular the no cognitive miracles principle <laughs> and how it can help us navigate different types of moral problems we are facing. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the gist of the dual process story is that morality is not a single thing. You know, sometimes we talk about the moral sense or the moral faculty or having a moral compass. But um, I think what this work shows primarily is that there isn't a single kind of process that, that outputs moral judgments in our brains. And uh, we talked a little bit about trolley dilemmas um, and these have been a kind of useful probe, a little sort of fruit fly with which to study these things and sort of see more clearly this split between these different types of processes. So for people who aren't familiar, the basic trolley setup goes like this. You, you've got a trolley that's headed towards five people, a runaway trolley that will kill them if nothing is done. Uh, but you're on a footbridge. <clears throat> in between the oncoming trolley and the five on the tracks. And the only way you can save them is to push this big person. We'll say it's someone, a person wearing a big backpack um, off of the footbridge and onto the tracks and they will get killed by the trolley, but it will stop the trolley from killing the five people. So is it okay to push the person in order to save five lives? Um, yes, this will definitely work. We're assuming, and no, you can't jump yourself because uh, you don't have the big backpack on. These are just assumptions mm -hmm. that we're making. Um, and uh, what's really going on here is the, the, the thought of pushing the person off the footbridge elicits a strong emotional response, which we can see uh, in uh, one of the pathways in the brain. So the strength of that negative emotional response is reflected in a response in a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is generally involved in directing attention to affectively salient things, especially negative things, but not always. Um, and, you know, you get this kind of moral, emotional alarm bell going off at the thought of pushing that person. And that's a good thing because we don't generally want people to be pushing people off of high places. Um, but uh, in this case, if you don't push, more people are going to die, which is a very sort of weird situation. Uh, then there's an, another sort of pathway or set of cognitive mechanisms in your brain that enables you to think about this as a causal model. That is to say, well, five people will die if you don't do this. Uh, and having five lives uh, dead is, 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 five people dead is worse than having one person dead. So you should do the thing that will produce a better result. It's not very complicated reasoning, but it involves hmm. having uh, preferences about outcomes and then understanding which actions are more likely to lead to the outcomes uh, that you want. And uh, this set of processes is, is most closely associated with action in the frontal parietal control network. Um, and uh, more generally, you know, Fiery Cushman has done some beautiful work uh, providing evidence that really at a, at, at a more basic level, what's going on here is that there's the distinction between sort of model-free versus model-based reasoning. So model-free is you have a value attached to an action in a particular context. So pushing someone off of a high place like this 
just feels like a wrong thing to do. And then model-based is, you know, what I described before. That is, you have an understanding of what's going to cause what, and you have preferences about which outcomes. And so you choose the actions based on the outcomes that you expect them to bring about. So this all maybe sounds very sort of detailed and narrow and technical, but more generally, the idea is that we have feelings about actions, just how they feel independent of whether or not they're likely to do good or not, right? And then we have judgments that are based on adding up costs and benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And those are important things, and that happen all the time. And what's weird about the Footbridge case is that it forces those two things against each other in a way that's somewhat artificial, but it makes it much easier to see what's going on in people's brains or, or what's going on cognitively using other types of, 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 of measures. So that is... That's the basic sort of dual process trolley story and what I sort of see as the, as, as, as the main cognitive or af cognitive affective psychological lesson. From it. I was, I w I'm keen if you could talk about the, the really cool sounding principle, the no cognitive miracles principle. Oh, right. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just like, so sounds I'm, pretty catchy. So what's going on there? Well, I'm, I, I, you can tell me, cut it if you don't think this is so relevant, but that, 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 that phrase, that line comes from a paper that's really about um, drawing normative conclusions from moral intuitions, right? And uh, I think, you know, in, in, in moral philosophy, you know, the way you know, before trolley dilemmas entered research in psychology and neuroscience, they were a staple of, of moral philosophy. The idea was, well, you could just, you know, have a simple utilitarian theory that says save the most lives, but saves people like, uh, you know, Judith Jarvis Thompson and Francis Cam philosophers, both, um, that clearly can't be right. Here's a counterexample. It would be wrong to push somebody off a footbridge in order to save more lives, right? Um, and, uh, you know, what, my response to that has been, well, we have an intuition that, uh, that, that, you know, that, that that's wrong. But how much should we trust that intuition? Um, and it would be, the, so the claim is that it would be a kind of cognitive miracle if your intuition's could always lead to the to the to, to the right answer, right? As opposed to just tracking what has been good or bad for you in the past. So the idea is is that it would be a, a it, it would be a kind of miracle if our intuitions were completely reliable, right? And uh, so one way to think of the no cognitive miracles principle says is is essentially a, a way of of saying. When you're doing moral philosophy or when you're deciding whether or not to trust your gut reactions, you shouldn't assume that your intuitions are automatically right. You should ask yourself, what experiences, direct or indirect, trained up those intuitions? Mm. And then, you know, what, what, what are the limitations of those, of those experiences? Um, and, uh, well... I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll leave I, it at that. Yeah, yeah, I think you I think you have elegantly segued into my next question. I think you've already answered it, but I like yeah. the question. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was about this the, the, this phrase the wig, the wisdom of repugnance or the yeah. yuck factor, which right. I think is what you were probably just talking about. This idea yeah. that because we have a negative intuition about something that that is indicative that there is something morally wrong about it. And but but I guess you're saying well. 
I mean, it, lots of factors will have gone into that feeling, that sensation. So why don't you just have a think about what those factors are and see whether it's still relevant? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that that's right, that, um, you know, we, I think disgust in particular is a really problematic emotion to be relying on when making moral judgments. That disgust mm -hmm. is primarily about distancing oneself from things, right? And uh, and when it comes to certain kinds of actions, maybe that's not so bad, right? That if telling a lie makes you feel gross, makes you feel dirty, okay, well, maybe that that that's a good thing. But one of the worst features of our kind of social disgust reactions is that they can be applied to other people, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're disgusted by Harvey Weinstein, okay, fine, you know, um, but uh, we, we have other reasons. We, we, we can convict Harvey Weinstein morally and otherwise without relying on our emotions. We can look at what he did and the harm that it caused and say that's enough for us to say that that behavior needs to be corrected and certainly not re rewarded, to put it mildly. Um, but, you know, disgust throughout history has, has been used to dehumanize people and to exclude people and to sort of cut off conversations and, uh, and, 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 and to uh, protect the purity of the in-group, right? And, and so I, I, I think that there's not much that we gain from having disgust mm. be informing our moral discourse because any, any good response, good disgust responses that we have, what makes them good is that we can point to something else that would justify mm. them. Mm. And then in that case, we say, well, why not just point to that? If this action is causing a lot of harm, um, well, then we can just disapprove of it because of the harm and we don't need to, to rely on our disgust signals. But, the, but, but, but our disgust can really prevent us from seeing clearly and especially when it comes to being fair towards other people and inclusive towards other groups. So um, mm -hmm. I am not a big fan of, of moral disgust because I think when it, when it gets things right, it's, it's typically redundant. And when it gets things wrong, it's typically terrible. That's really interesting. I heard lots of lots of examples of um, I would say John Haidt, who was talking about in one of his books about the example of a brother and a sister who have protected sex, and is that that's an example of one of these situations where it's, we feel disgusted by it, but you can sort of pull pull it apart and say there is there are no negative outcomes potentially of that if the you know protection has been taken etc so it causes us to realize that those two things can well the the, the disgust can be un, an unreliable guide yeah i think you know you can imagine different versions of that case right you can imagine let's say you know brother and sister just kind of getting a little drunk and decided to you know uh to 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 to, to engage in sexual activities together as many people have pointed out um, that might be a pretty bad thing to do. That you might be kind of ruining your relationship uh, <laughs> by, 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 by 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 crossing that 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 boundary just out of to satisfy a little bit of curiosity, right? Mm. Um, on the other hand, you can imagine a case where it's people who are you know biologically brother and sister who are separated at birth, and they meet later in life, and they fall in love, and they have a perfectly normal, normal, perfectly healthy romantic relationship and it just happens that they're genetically related and they only find this out you know, much later on right um 
And then at that point, you might say, well, you know, the, the only way in which they're really brother and sister is because of their genes. And the only problem with that is if they have children, there could be uh, health considerations um, due to the genetic overlap. And if they said, well, we're not planning on having children or, or we're going to adopt or, you know, if it's mm-hmm. possible to do good enough genetic screening for all screening for all the things that might be issues, then you might say, OK, that case is fine. So that would be a case where, you know, if someone has a disgust reaction, you might just say, okay, but you need to get over it. Here's why you're having that reaction. And mm-hmm. here's why it's not relevant. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the kind of horny drunk, regular brother and sister, you might say, you know, mm-hmm. may, 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 the, the, the reason not to do this may not be that God forbids it, but that th- there may be other considerations here that uh, you're not taking seriously enough. Right. So either way, I would say, well, think about the consequences and think about them carefully and ask whether or not there might be hidden considerations that you're not fully accounting for. But if you've if you've done a thorough accounting of, you know, all the ways this could go bad and it still seems okay, like in the brother and sister separated at birth kind of way Mm -hmm. with all of Mm -hmm. the precautions in place, then, Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe that's reasonable. If I were to put uh, my uh, effective scientist hat on for a second, uh, and I was thinking, well, okay, disgust is one way to appraise the situation. But what if I'm somebody who then uh, also senses some sadness, or maybe some other emotions that happen at the same time? And I compare that person who just focuses on disgust. So one thing that has always has always bugged me about this kind of intuition versus deliberation type of models that have existed in philosophy for centuries is that they seem to be simplifying a lot of affective processes to either affect or cognition. And of course, we know from neuroscience that that's not always the case. And you like with these two examples where when you think about just two horny teenagers who found out that they're who are brothers and sister, um, well, that's potentially just discussed. But when you hear about this other story um, where they found out later in life and there are all sorts of precautions, et cetera, et cetera, there, you may have a whole range of emotional reactions uh, which potentially will help you understand the situation in a richer uh, fashion. I mean, is there something to it or am I, am I too, sim- too simplistic in my thinking here? No, I'm, I, I, you know, emotions are complicated and multi-layered and, and it's never been my view. And I don't know if it's anyone's view who says, yeah, you should just ignore emotion completely and everything. Right. It's, it's more a question again of taking your emotions seriously, but not, not too seriously, not as, as, as infallible. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so I guess it's, it's, it's not that I don't think that there's, wisdom embedded in our emotional responses. It's just that sometimes there can be things that are unwise embedded in our emotional responses. And so we have to, we, 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 we need to assess at that higher level. Um, I'll also comment on this kind of never ending dynamic uh, where, you know, someone tells a dual, dual process story about some aspect or every aspect of psychology. And then someone else critic says, Oh, emotion and cognition. These are not separate things. They interact. And, right. you know, my view being on the first side of this is no one has ever said that these things don't interact <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, it's uh, the, the question is, is there a meaningful dissociation here? 
And I think the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that there is, right? That, you know, you can have patients who have damage to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And as a result, they give extremely different responses compared to normal people, right? Because one of the cognitive pathways is cut off and the other cognitive pathway is, 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 is intact, right? Um, and so I think, you know, a, a, you see this most clearly in, in, in lesion studies where you can really, you know, have a, have a decisive but selective deficit as opposed to, you know, cognitive load and things like that where you can kind of maybe sort of disrupt something in an online kind of way. So I, I really do think that there are right. these separate cognitive capacities, but then in healthy normative normal decision-making, they converge on a final common pathway where the different outputs of these systems can be weighed against each other. So it's always a back and forth and it's always in, in parallel, at least in healthy people. But I do really think that we have dissociable cognitive systems and that's one of the most important insights of modern cognitive and social psychology is that there, there really are you know, dissociable systems at work here. And, and the fact that they interact, I don't think should blind us to the significance of that discovery. I was just thinking, rethinking your bumper sticker. Uh, you yeah. could have "Don't believe everything you feel" as well, like second sticker underneath. Um, yeah, I actually think that in some ways I, that that's a, a more accurate version of the first of, of right, the right, sticker, yeah. right? Fair, yeah, fair. that 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 I I, I I I think the think in the original one is really more of a feel. Mm. Mm. Um, um, I was just before we we leave. The, I mean. This is a, obviously a huge topic, but before we will um, leave this behind, is there is there anything, any sort of questions that you, if you had a big chunk of money, you would uh, look into in the model? Is there is there some some aspects of it that you you would want to dig into a bit more? Um, uh, you know, taking it on to the next step. Well, most of what I'm working on these days is actually on the moral social side is kind of more applied uh, and and trying to sort of use what we've understood already to make progress on real world problems. Um, so, you know, I think other people are doing a great job of sort of digging further into the mechanics of the general dual process framework. And I, I mentioned Fiery Cushman before, who has really, you know, done incredible work in, in, in this way. Um, but uh, mostly I'm, I'm kind of thinking about taking the, the fairly coarse, but I still think meaningful understanding that we have of the, competing motivations or or, or or causes of human behavior and trying to apply them. Um, and so I, I mentioned that a bit when it comes to cooperation across lines of, of, of conflict. Another area where I've been working on this, this is with uh, Lucius Caviola, is on uh, charitable giving and how to make charitable giving more effective. So um, that's that's kind of where my my, my big push is is these days. Mm -hmm. So I think that leads nicely into where we go next, Igor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was just wondering about that, uh, Josh. So this work on philanthropy and on wise philanthropy, I guess one could call it that, the charitable donations. So I know that you've built a tool together with your colleagues that can help people with some of that. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this project and what this tool is about? Yeah, so the, the tool is called Giving Multiplier, um, and it is a system that provides people information about how to uh, donate more effectively, and then also 
incentivizes people to donate more effectively. And I'll, I'll say a little bit about how it works kind of starting from the beginning. So uh, for a long time, I've been interested in thinking, you know, as a philosopher, how, how can we do as much good as possible? And this is coming from the utilitarian tradition, which I very much subscribe to, although I don't like the U word. I prefer to call myself a deep pragmatist, which I think uh, better captures what it actually means to apply this philosophy in practice. So as a deep pragmatist, I've been thinking, well, how do you actually get people to do to use their resources in a way to, that, that can do as much good as, as possible? And there are many right. good ways. There are many ways to do good in the world. You can have a career, for example, that d- does a lot of good things. Um, but the most straightforward thing that applies to anybody with disposable income is charitable donations. Uh, you can you can support causes that really help people. Something that a lot of people don't know is that the most effective charities aren't just a little bit more effective than typical charities. They can be orders of magnitude more effective. Um, so uh, you know, to take a, a, a recent classic example of this that comes from Toby Ord, uh, if you donate to a charity that uh, trains guide dogs for blind people in the United States. Uh, It might cost $50,000 to train a guide dog to help somebody. Um, That Mm -hmm. would help one person who's already blind. Whereas for less than $100, you can fund a surgery to prevent infection from trachoma, which causes people to lose a lot of their vision or go blind. Which means that that, that supporting trachoma surgery in other countries can be a hundred, even a thousand times more effective in terms of blindness prevented or alleviated per dollar um, than, than, than supporting the, the local charity that trains the guide dogs. Now, this is not to say that it's a bad thing to give your money to training guide dogs. It's much better than spending the money yourself on a fancier car or a fancier vacation, mm-hmm. um, which is for, you know, typically the default for people who have disposable income. But if you're going to donate, you can do much, much better if you think carefully or, or or listen to people who've thought carefully about how to make your money go as, 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 as far as possible. So I've been right. interested for a long time in saying, how do we persuade people to give and give effectively? And for years, I tried persuading people the way I was persuaded. So I was persuaded long ago by the philosopher Peter Singer, uh, you know, who famously imagined walking by a pond where there's a child who's drowning in the pond. And the question is, you know, do you have an obligation to wade in and save the child, even if it means you're going to ruin your your clothes or your your shoes or whatever it is? Um, you know, maybe it'll cost you if you're wearing a, a suit, you know, five hundred dollars or more. Uh, I don't wear very fancy suits, but <laughs> some people wear very fancy suits. Sure. Um, uh, uh, if if you um, you know, is it? A, did you have an obligation to save the child, even at some significant cost to yourself? And most people say, of course, you'd be a moral monster if you uh, let the child drown. Um, and then Peter Singer says, so there are children on the other side of the world who are drowning in poverty, who are badly in need of food and medicine, which you could provide, if not for $500, then, you know, uh, maybe something more, more like, uh, $5,000, you could save somebody's life or you and a bunch of your friends could get together and provide that much. Do you have an obligation to do that? And then most people go, well, I see what you're saying, but not going to do it. Um, and that's what we found in, in our research is that, you know, we would present these sorts of hypotheticals designed to sort of give people the thought, oh my goodness, I, I need to, to do more for people on the other side of the world. They're just like drowning children right in front of me. And what we found is that very few people actually are persuaded to act based on that kind of argument. Now, I should say, 
There are plenty of people in the world who have been persuaded by it. I'm one, and some extremely wealthy people have been persuaded by it. So it has actually made an enormous difference. Um, Billions of dollars have been raised um, for extremely effective causes based on this argument. But nevertheless, typical people are not so susceptible. So thinking, well, what what would, might, might work better with, with, with more typical donors? Um, Lucius Caviola and I had the thought, well, what if instead of telling people that they ought to give and give effectively instead of what they're doing, what if we said, look, you give some money to charity. Why not give some to the stuff that you already are really drawn to, you know, maybe the, the local animal shelter, for example, but then some money to causes that, experts say are super effective. So, you know, I mentioned the trachoma surgery before. You can also uh, provide a treatment that can rid somebody of parasitic worms, which makes, which are very painful and makes it difficult to go to school if you're a kid uh, for, for less than a right. dollar um, or just distributing malaria nets uh, that, you know, where, where the, the, the cost of, you know, of delivering a thousand nets might be about $5,000 and that can, can typically save someone's life on average. Um, there are really useful things that you can do. Um, why not do one of those things and also give to the local animal shelter? And we found that people were very happy to split, make split donations. So much so that if you give people a splitting option, more money overall goes to the highly effective charity than if you just force people to choose. So we thought, oh, this is interesting. Maybe this works. And then we thought, well, okay, if we were going to, and we did some research to try to figure out what's going on there. And, and there is a kind of related dual process story there where basically people really want to support the charities that they love, but there's a kind of diminishing returns from that warm glow. Well, you know, if you give $50 to your favorite charity instead of $100 to your favorite charity, you don't get half the warm glow. You get something like 80% or maybe even 100% of the warm glow. Um, which means that you could give $50 to your favorite charity and still have $50 to do something else. In particular, you could do something super effective. So uh, if you give from the heart and from the head, so to speak, then you get two kinds of satisfaction. You get the satisfaction of giving to your personal favorite charity and you get that warm glow of you know supporting the local animal shelter or supporting research into the kind of cancer that someone you loved uh, had. Um, but you also get to say, you know, I'm very smart listening to those experts and 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 uh, supporting the distribution of malaria nets, which can save so many lives relatively right. easily, right? And then we thought, okay, well, if we're going to try to do this in the real world, you know, we could just say, hey, everybody, make split donations. But there's no real sort of mechanism or reason for people to pay attention to this. So we thought, well, what if we incentivize people? So we did some experiments where we said... Um, how about if you make a split donation, we'll add money to both of your donations. We'll add 25% on top of the charity that you chose and on top of the super effective charity that we recommended. And we found that people really love that uh, even more. Um, and so we, we thought, okay, well, that sounds like it could work. But then, of course, that money that we're using to add on top has to come from somewhere. And, you know, a natural place for this to come from, you know, people, there will be these ask. sort of, yeah, angel donors who will say, okay, well, let's have a matching campaign. I'll put up $100,000 and match people's donations, right? Um, there are some sort of issues with whether or not that's sort of all above board. But putting that aside, um, we wanted to see, well, maybe we can get ordinary donors to be the matchers. So we tried experiments where we asked people, hey, you just made this split donation and you got money added on top. Do you want to take part of the money that you were going to give and put it into a matching fund so you can kind of pay it forward for other people. And not everybody, but a fair number of people agreed to do that. 
and enough people agreed to do that that it was enough to pay for the matching funds that the other people got. So we looked at this and we thought, wow, this looks like this could be a kind of self-sustaining thing where we have a website that allows you to pick a charity that you love, but also pick a charity that's super effective, according to the experts. And then you split your donation however you want. And then based on that split, we add money on top to both. And then we ask people if they're willing to support the system. And some people say that they're willing to do that. Um, and uh, the whole thing could just go. And people feel, you know, people donate. They feel great. They're giving to charities that they love and getting money added on top. But they're also being introduced to effective giving and getting money added on top. And then they have this kind of pay it forward experience where they're supporting it for the next people that come along. And so we said, well, let's give this a try. So we built this website called Giving Multiplier. Um, and uh, it's it's up. It's running. We We launched this in... November of 2020, and it has raised uh, oh, oh, about $1.7 million since then, with over a million of that going to support some of the world's most effective charities and lots of people feeling really good about supporting the charities they love and supporting those highly effective right. charities. And uh, so we're, we're, we're looking to, to, to keep it going. And uh, we welcome listeners of the On Wisdom podcast to give Giving Multiplier a try. So we have created a code, which is all one word, uh, On Wisdom. And if you enter that code, then you will get a higher matching rate uh, for your donation. So we can, we can make, uh, we, we, we can do matches for small donations, I think as, as, as little as $10, but it can go way, way up from there. So, uh, if you want to support charities that you love, but also, um, super duper effective charities that can, uh, really get a lot of bang for the buck, then, uh, give giving multiplier a try with the on wisdom code. Yeah. And we have the link also in the episode description below. So please check it out guys. Um, I love that idea of um, people getting to get the warm and fuzzy feeling, but also the sort of tingly brain feeling. Like I did something smart as well. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's uh, that's the idea. Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Like we have been on a massive journey, uh, a long, longer journey than we planned for. And I think that was inevitable. You've done so much uh, important work in this space. Uh, been really satisfying conversation. And, and it's so nice that it ends in something practical like the uh, Giving Multiplier um, resource as well. So I believe that's givingmultiplier.org. And we'll put the link in the show notes. And uh, just thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Joshua Green. On the On Wisdom podcast, very exciting. Um, I remember reading his book uh, a number of years ago, and never did I think that I'd be having a conversation with Joshua Green. So that oh, was that was exciting, yes. a bit of a thrill. Um, and Igor, yes. just you know what what leapt out at you? I I really like this uh, idea of you know the balance and uh, the balance between this kind of more intuitive process that he's talking about, and then the sort of more deliberate process and. Uh, how you need to kind of like find some kind of a way to integrate the two. The, in essence, he was talking about metacognition the whole time. And, you know, my jam is metacognition mm. for wisdom. Right. So, you, you have a T-shirt with metacognition. Yeah, I do have a T-shirt okay. where like yeah. the owl had yeah. a, has a metacognition somewhere on it. Um, exactly. so, yeah. so, yeah, so he in essence was talking about that. So I found that quite interesting. I also found it really interesting that um, – well, he has a certain position about uh, the role of uh, emotional pro affective process and cog uh, like higher yep. order cognitive yep. process and how mm -hmm. he views this nowadays. And and the last thing that I found uh, really cool is, uh, of course, this kind of more philanthropic angle with the giving multiplier. 
Mm-hmm. That one's really yeah, cool. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that was what I was going to pick up on. Was um, one of the questions we asked him was like uh, about his you know whole due process thing. Like, if you, I asked him, you had a chunk of money, what yeah. else would you go back into and explore? And he and it was quite refreshing. He was like, you know what. I think we've got enough to go on. Uh, I, I want to start using this in the world to to make philanthropy more right, effective. Right, right. So I, I liked, and I don't think we've had a whole lot of that on the podcast with practical, guests, yeah. You know, yeah, um, and you know, obviously, obviously, all this the theoretical work is incredibly important. But it was just nice that he was he was taking yeah. his large body of research and turning it into something yeah. practical. And you can see the lines. I mean, yeah. it's 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 completely grown out of his academic work yeah. and he's built it into a practical thing so that's very that's, cool. uh, refreshing yeah mm, yeah i mean cool. last thing that i found really interesting is like uh, josh's whole approach is highly utilitarian and i mean i've been maybe mm. surrounded wait, by wait deep pragmatism i but deep I pragmatism that's right but it's in that sense he's a utilitarian um and uh, you know <laughs> i've been uh, surrounded by uh, i guess aristotelian crowd like those who believe in some kind of virtue ethics a bit more mm. recently so going back to somebody who's like no it's all about you know maximizing your preferences and, mm. um, mm-hmm. and i guess deep pragmatism is also quite refreshing and very different he was a refreshing guest in many many ways um and uh, it was great too and i think we I think we squeezed out of him that he'll come on the podcast again and play the guitar at some point. I think Maybe, we've yeah. I think we've got that yeah. on record, yeah. Um, so, uh, listeners, we'll keep you posted. All right, take care. Cheers. <laughs>